Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Sunday, October 9th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and this week I'm here alone. After our huge episode with Paul Stork, Chris is still on the road, still recovering from his big Jupiter Broadcasting road trip, so I will be doing a tight episode by myself, and let's just hop in. This week in news, the EU has banned all Russian crypto wallets. There was a spiral BTC quarterly report with a a lot of Bitcoin industry type news, but there was an interesting section about DesFems and a Bitcoin mentorship program that I've been meaning to mention for a long time. It looks like I've missed a few articles from Arthur Hayes, but his latest, Contagion, is a pretty good blow-by-blow of the guilt panic in England that occurred last week and how that leads to yield curve control. In tokenomics, we have another piece by Arthur, Snippets, which is kind of a mea culpa on his part. I find it interesting because he kind of trashes Ethereum's decentralization trade-offs and development direction, while also talking about the tokenomics that he thought would produce big pumps in price. That seems to have not worked out, and he's getting a little bit liquidated. He also talks about long-term Bitcoin use case. The whole thing is so contradictory and interesting. It's very Arthur. Also in tokenomics news, BNB, an Ethereum competitor that's even more centralized than Ethereum, froze their entire chain after a hack. Gosh, what a surprise. Also, there was a story about a member of the Flashbots team leaving over disagreements about censorship. Yes, Ethereum has censorship. Flashbots is an interesting point of centralization in that convoluted ecosystem. I think it's worth talking about. In privacy, Celsius, the CFI, I forget how we talk about Celsius. They're not decentralized. They kind of pretended to be not a bank, but they were, in effect, an unregistered bank with no insurance. They have actually doxed every former user of their platform in a bankruptcy filing, leaking email addresses names, and online wallet addresses. So whoopsie-daisy. It's sort of interesting how it happened, though. It was actually the judge in their bankruptcy case who declined to censor the information. I'm also going to boost a online privacy guide by Mulvad, my favorite VPN provider. I'm really giving away the milk for free, as Chris would say, because Mulvad really should be sponsoring this podcast. Send them a boost or hit them up on Twitter. Tell them to do that, please. Then in Bitcoin education, we have Sir Hack's analysis of the Bitcoin Genesis block. Just what a great link. And that was given to me by someone in the Jupiter Broadcasting Matrix channel where we discuss Bitcoin and things surrounding it. So shout out to, I want to say, King Hat, I think. There's also a piece I mentioned last week with Paul called Was Satoshi a Greedy Miner? TLDR, he wasn't, but it pairs nicely with the Sirhawk piece. And then we had a big Bitcoin Optech edition 220, which covers transaction relay, flow control, and more. And then we'll have some feedback and boosts, which might be a little thin because because OMG, your Bitcoin dad is getting a little tired of Umbro. He promised to migrate to a new platform. He didn't, but it's punishing him every day he doesn't. So the node went down again, and I'm feeling quite embarrassed about that. So hopefully that will motivate me to migrate to a more stable platform. Thank you for your understanding. Now, our first story is about the European Union's eighth rounds of sanctions against Russia for the Ukraine invasion. I hope that Chris and I have in no way seemed sympathetic to the aggression uh, performed by Russia against the nation of Ukraine. I think that we've been trying to point out that the sanctions and the financial penalties levied against Russia were in some ways incoherent because of the way that European energy policy, in particular Germany's reliance on natural gas, was very much based on Russian cooperation. And so the whole sanctions regime, I think, was very schizophrenic because there was this idea that they would sanction Russia 
Russia, but they'd still be able to buy Russian oil and gas cheaply in the European Union and maybe in the European Union periphery. Well, in this eighth package of sanctions, there is a new stipulation. It's under a section on restrictions on state-owned enterprises. And there's, I just, it's hard for me to parse. I'll just read it to you. Financial, IT, consultancy, and other business services. The existing prohibitions on crypto assets have been tightened by banning all crypto asset wallets, accounts, or custody services, irrespective of the amount of the wallet. Previously, up to 10,000 euros was allowed. I just don't see, how does that relate to IT, consultancy, and other business services? And why is that in the restrictions on Russian state-owned enterprises? So reading that, it's just not clear to me if this is saying that you can't interact with crypto wallets that are controlled by Russian state-owned enterprises. To date, I don't believe we know of any wallets that are controlled by Russian state actors, but it just seems very unclear and poorly written. So I think that broadly, these sanctions are saying don't use crypto to interact with Russia. The specifics don't seem very clear. And I have to say this is just seems like bad policy because if you're going to make a rule, I think you should define it very clearly because, for instance, are we breaking sanctions if we send some cryptocurrency to our cousin who might be having a rough time, lost their job or something in Russia? I don't know. Seems unclear to me now. The other thing to mention, of course, is that this is completely unenforceable. If you know someone's Bitcoin address, you can send money to that address. There is no effective way to stop you. Ethereum, on the other hand, maybe you won't be able to send to that address, and we'll get into that later. So these sanctions are really in some way problematic because if you're sanctioning an activity that you can't control, you're going to create some criminals because you can't actually stop someone from doing it. But then you say, hey, don't do that. going to punish you harshly if you do, but it's trivially easy for someone to do. Well, of course, people are going to do it. So I see problems with that down the line. Spiral BTC is a large company in the Bitcoin space. I honestly have trouble keeping track of Spiral, Block, Square, whatever. It's just very complicated from where I'm standing. However, this is a large chunk of kind of Bitcoin industry news and goss. Spiral is sponsoring several developers, which is super cool. Johannes Hoffman, who's a data scientist who does on-chain analysis. They're also sponsoring Chris Belcher, Sergey Delgado, Vasily Dimov, VLS, Summer of Bitcoin, BTC Pay, and Stefan Delorme. These are all real contributors to Bitcoin, and it's awesome that they are being financially supported by Spiral. Because one thing to be aware of is that all of these altcoins, all of these financial scams like Solana and whatnot, they pay developers six-figure salaries to build these crappy systems that they know will never survive. But there really aren't that many entities that are incentivized to pay for Bitcoin development. Bitcoin is an open source project. It's a commons. And in many ways, it has a free rider problem where we can all use Bitcoin for free, essentially, and we don't need to pay anyone to access it. And so why should we? So we kind of have a short-term versus long-term incentive program. Short-term, it's great to be able to use Bitcoin and not pay all the developers who are building great features and creating all this value for the network. Long-term, we hear it ourselves if we don't support them because if they stop developing or development slows or great developments that otherwise would have happened don't happen, then the value of our Bitcoin holdings are reduced and maybe there's valuable functions that we would have enjoyed in the future that never were made. So good on Spiral. They also mentioned that this consultancy called Desfems has a Bitcoin mentorship program. And I actually looked into this. I think I attempted to apply to it, though, like having done more research, I'm not sure if it's just for women or, or what. Desfems seems to be a consultancy that's focused 
on kind of promoting women in tech and supporting their career development and skills. And they have a Bitcoin mentorship program. And I think that's so cool because when I applied to the program, they had a kind of a fun little test. You had to compile Bitcoin Core and then you had to run a a test because there's a bunch of Python testing software in Bitcoin Core. And honestly, I didn't finish my application because I was trying to run all the software on a plane in between two places. And when I landed, I totally forgot to go back to it. And then the the window closed. So if anyone from DesFems is listening, your Bitcoin dad would love some mentorship or to support this program somehow. But anyway, I'm just mentioning it because it seems kind of cool. And I just don't know of other Bitcoin mentorship programs other than, say, Summer of Bitcoin or the Chain Code or Lightning Labs residency. So kind of a cool thing that's happening there. Contagion is Arthur Hayes' latest piece, and it's kind of a doozy. It starts out with going through a blow-by-blow of how the British government bond market exploded last week. If you're not aware, essentially what happened is the Bank of England was doing quantitative tightening, which basically means they're removing pounds from the banking system by selling down their balance sheet, because when a central bank buys an asset, they create money to buy that asset. When they sell an asset, they give an asset into the system and destroy the money they were paid because the central bank doesn't do any kind of rehypothecation of their assets like other commercial financial institutions do. And this is obviously a very high level approach to the problem. Jeffrey Schneider would say it's simplistic and doesn't capture what's really happening here. But I think that this is a useful enough model for understanding the one perspective on modern central banking. Bank of England is performing quantitative tightening. Then the Liz Trust government, which was recently sort of came to power. They unveil a new budget that's crazy. It's basically tax cuts for the rich and energy subsidies. And trust, they kind of come out of this sort of, how to put it, it's just this Reaganist dogma of government's the problem. Don't tax the rich. Trickle down economics. Trickle down economics has been pretty thoroughly disproven. So this is a sort of economic, I don't want to say libertarian because it's not quite how Bitcoin libertarians probably think about themselves but it's sort of an economic libertarian policy that tends to be promoted by the wealthiest entities in an economy that generally benefit the most when the top tax bracket is cut off. Well, this is really a expensive budget at a time when there's not a huge amount of demand for British government debt and the British bond markets threw up. Uh, Essentially, the Bank of England could not sell British government debt at the price they wanted, and therefore they had to lower the price to clear the market. And this actually made several pension funds insolvent immediately because these funds had been levered up, assuming that interest rates would fall instead of rising. And this sort of gets to the systemic instability of our traditional financial system. Well, immediately, quantitative tightening and controlling inflation goes out the window, and the Bank of England intervenes, buys as much government debt as they have to to sort of stabilize this market. Their balance sheet goes up. So this is quantitative easing, like it or not. Now, it kind of looks like they're fixing interest rates again, which is problematic if you've got inflation in the quote-unquote real economy. Because when a central bank attempts to control interest rates, it means that if the interest rate goes over the target they're setting, they will buy infinite assets with newly printed money to push the rate back to that target. So when you fix a system, you need to have at least one variable that's floating. And in this case, the floating variable 
variable is the central bank's balance sheet. Another way of saying that is that the floating free variable is the amount of quote unquote money that the central bank is willing to produce. Now, quantitative easing and yield curve control theoretically are inflationary because if you print more money, the amount of goods in the economy is relatively fixed because digital money, digital fiat money can be created instantly, but it takes time to create fuel and food and cars and phones. Now, I say theoretically inflationary. Why, why is that? Well, it's because for the past decade or 14 years since 2008, the increase in central bank balance sheets, quote unquote, money printing did not result in higher prices in the CPI, the consumer price index. Sure, the price of some things went up, but the things that really increased in value were financialized assets like houses, like stocks. And the logic was that, okay, well, we're creating a certain kind of financial money that tends to stay in financial markets, and this doesn't really leak into the real economy. And there's actually a logic to this, because if you have a monetary policy that increases the value of financial assets, and I'm going to talk about the US, but this is broadly true of every country in the world. Financial assets are majority owned by the richest people in that economy. And as you make rich people richer, they don't really spend more. Sure, they might buy an extra house, but their spending will go up by a fraction of a percent. Whereas when you give poor people money, they spend it immediately. Their spending might double or triple or quadruple. It's a completely different and bigger function giving money to poor people. And you can kind of see this intuitively because since 2008, the US money supply, it increased by a large multiple between 2008 and 2019, and then it doubled again in 2020. So when did inflation really take off? Well, inflation took off when there were government programs that gave a very small amount of money to every American, including poor people. That was when inflation really took off. And this gets into a question of semantics, because you could say, well, is it really inflation, dad? Because on the one hand, money was given to people and they chased after scarce goods with it and they bid the price up. But actually, you could say that that was really a supply chain problem because in normal times, the supply chains would have been working better and we would have been able to bring in more goods and that would have controlled the price pressure. And actually, if we look at what's happening in the financial system, it appears that large amounts of financial money are being destroyed and that actually inside of the financial system, there are deflationary forces because there's all this debt that reduces the rehypothecation of financial assets and reduces money creation within the financial system. Well, I got to shrug at this because at the end of the day, what do individuals care about inflation-wise? Do people really care so much about asset inflation? I mean, maybe if they have a asset-heavy retirement portfolio. But as Paul Storks pointed out last week, Americans are broke. No one's going to retire. And if Americans are broke, I'm just going to make the assumption that everybody in the world is basically broke. The average person is pretty broke. And this fantasy of retiring at 65 and having 20 golden years is probably beyond the realistic reach of most people. So if that's the case, then what we really care about is consumer price inflation. We care about the price of consumer goods. And do we really care if this price is driven by scarcity because there's not enough production or inflation because there's not enough goods and money's being created too quickly? Frankly, I would say, why not both? Why not? There is a lack of production because of capital misallocation, possibly caused by 10 years of monetary and fiscal intervention by central banks and governments around the world that have been attempting to steer the economy in a certain direction for good or bad, no judgments. Maybe 
maybe that changed the distribution of productive resources in society and may have had a role in our current lack of stuff. On the monetary side, you could say, well, look, giving people a little bit of cash isn't really inflationary because relative to the amount of money that's being, quote, destroyed in the financial system when asset prices go down, it's nothing. Well, I sort of call BS. I think that the monetary system clearly isn't a single thing. There's financial money when banks and other big entities use treasury bills, U.S. treasury bills and government debt as the fuel for financial transactions that are theoretically very profitable. But no one can spend a treasury bill at the supermarket or to buy a house. They have to then transition into a different kind of money, which might be checking account money or cash money or Venmo money or even Bitcoin, and then use that to complete the transaction. So I would say clearly what happened in 2020 is that this more cash-like checking account type money suddenly got an influx and that immediately pushed inflation to double digits. I mean, immediately. So I don't want to get too lost here because I think that the inflation, deflation, money debate is the work of a lifetime and I have yet to see the definitive piece on it. But in the context of this Contagion article, what Arthur is pointing out is that in the face of any kind of financial market pressure, central banks turn on a dime. And he goes on to say that this suggests serious problems for the euro area. Not specifically because central banks are turning on a dime, but because prior to the energy crisis in Europe, most European countries, the pigs, Portugal, Italy, Greece, Spain, they had trade deficits, but mostly with Germany. And so everyone owed everybody euros. And this was sort of an internal problem that could be managed internally in Europe. Well, now that Germany is kind of running out of gas to produce all the stuff that they normally provide the rest of Europe with, this forces these periphery countries to go elsewhere for their goods, maybe to China, maybe to other places, maybe to Russia. And that means that instead of having these European trade deficits denominated in euros, which are sort of contained, sort of managed by the European Central Bank, they have to sell euros for other currencies. This creates downward pressure on the euro. Well, that's problematic. And this points to further stress on the European Union, because why stay together if you can't use the euro to buy all the stuff you need? That was kind of the point. It's an interesting read, and it might just be copium. It might just be Arthur licking his wounds from his disastrous ETH trade that we'll get into in a bit, and talking about how long-term Bitcoin is going to solve this problem. And here's the TLDR. Essentially, the financial systems of every country in the world have been addicted to cheap money and become over-indebted over the past 14 years. And as a result, as their relative currency prices uh, fluctuate, their economies stagnate, the ability to pay back debt becomes uncertain, and this leads to financial crises. Well, in a financial crisis, what everyone tends to do is to sell everything, buy dollars, and kind of hunker down in the U.S. dollar. Well, if that happens in European countries, the EU is likely to fall apart, the euro is likely to stop functioning as a currency, and so they're going to probably be hit with capital controls and yield curve control. Yield curve control is the central bank fixing the price of government debt and trying to do it in such a way that this controls sort of the price of debt of all the debt in the economy. And what it does is it kind of freezes the status quo, which freezes the state of financial markets. It also, in a way, freezes political reality. Just look at Japan. They've been doing yield curve control for 30 years now. I would posit that politically, Japan today looks very similar to Japan in 1989. 
yield curve control, freezing society, freezing financial markets. That's great if you're on top today, but if you're a younger person or you're not part of the in-group, then this really sucks. And I think that is sort of the perspective of Bitcoiners who would much rather, I think, a little bit more disruption in exchange for the possibility of climbing to the top of these social and economic structures. Why don't we get a chance to to have our day to eat? Something like that, maybe. Well, Bitcoin is kind of great in this world of capital controls and yield curve control because it's a financial asset that has great property rights. You can take it anywhere and no one can inflict negative interest rates on it. It's literally impossible to do all of this monetary and fiscal management on Bitcoin because Bitcoin is a decentralized protocol and network that is really, really difficult to influence. So that's a long-term case for the value of Bitcoin, I guess, as an investment and also the usefulness of Bitcoin as a payment network in a more balkanized financial world. Wow, didn't mean to talk so long about that. Please boost in and let me know if that was helpful. I was going to also cover Arthur's article snippets, which is mainly about how he's gotten a little bit wrecked on his bullish Ethereum trade. I feel like snippets is he wrote it for himself, trying to justify his bullishness and then rationalize how it didn't work out. TLDR, it's hard to predict prices. A lot of things are affecting financial markets that no one can predict or control, and he got it wrong. And the rest is just, in my opinion, post hoc rationalization. It's in the notes if you want to check it out. But maybe the most schadenfreude a bit of tokenomics news is that BNB, a Binance smart chain, I don't really understand why it's called BNB, but it is a clone of the Ethereum virtual machine, but it only has a single node controlled by Binance. And so because it has centralized, it is faster and cheaper. And as a result, there's a lot of degenerate trading going on on there. And it has a complicated structure. It's actually two chains, the BNB beacon chain and the BNB smart chain. It has bridges and swaps between them. And I think this is probably where the attack was targeting because these systems that connect different blockchains, there's no good way to connect to blockchains without, say, a drive chain, like Paul Storks has suggested. So what they're doing is some sort of centralized, trusted solution that's overly complex that tries to obscure the trust involved with complexity. And that's the perfect target for a hacker because who even understands how the thing works and it's protecting $500 million, uh, you know. Anyway, this is not a surprise to Bitcoiners, but hopefully, hopefully it's a wake up call to the simple poor fools who actually thought that any of these Bitcoin competitors were serious projects. Clearly not. If you can shut the chain down and reverse a $500 million hack, if you allow a $500 million hack to happen in the first place because your primitives, the building blocks of your system are so messy. Well, you know, maybe it's a big failure. Just a thought. Our last bit of altcoin schadenfreude comes from Flashbots. Now, for our Bitcoin-only audience, you might not be aware of Flashbots, so I'm sorry that I have to describe it to you. It's truly an abomination. Because of the way Ethereum was designed, it's possible to do decentralized trading on decentralized protocols or exchanges like Uniswap. And 
because of the way that Ethereum handles these transactions, if you're an Ethereum miner, you can actually look at the transactions in your mempool and you can front run them. So if someone's buying some altcoin on Ethereum, some ERC-20 token and paying Ethereum for it, you can kind of buy the ERC-20 token first and sell it to them before the person who actually thought that they were getting the trade gets it in because you're the miner. And they call this, they first called it Miner Extractable Value, MEV. But when they called it that, there was sort of a bad taste around this because the chain validators are front running the users and extracting value from them. And then they thought, okay, well, why don't we call it Maximal Extracted Value? So it's still the same acronym, MEV. You know, if your system has MEV, uh, there's probably a problem. This is not, to my knowledge, an issue with the design of Bitcoin, but Ethereum has a completely different design. Well, in true Ethereum fashion, there was a project called Flashbots that decided, hey, let's maximize this MEV. Let's create a tool that makes screwing Ethereum users really easy for miners to do. And then everyone can just subscribe to the Flashbox data feed and they can get the best ideas for how to extract value from their users on Ethereum. Now, what's interesting is the Flashbox data feed, they're basically taking transaction information and running it through some analysis to figure out what are the juiciest transactions that you can kind of reorder in your block to squeeze some money out. And then you pay some money to Flashbots and you get to pocket the difference. And I think they've even created these crazy bidding markets where miners and whatever and participants are kind of bidding to get the MEV from other users. It's really hyper financialization in the worst possible way, in my opinion. But anyway, the other thing it is, is centralizing because while you can still be an Ethereum miner and not participate in Flashbots, setting up your own Flashbot infrastructure is really hard and frankly, probably expensive. So just use Flashbots. Well, that turns it into a source for centralization because if they are analyzing all these transactions and optimizing the miner extractable value you can suck out of them, well, they can also censor transactions. They can also have a OFAC filter list that blocks suspicious transactions. And that's exactly what they're doing. And basically, one of the creators of Flashbots has left the project. It seems that he's kind of anti-censorship and Flashbots is, well, they don't care. They're all about making money in financial trades and they do not allow Tornado Cash coins into their system. So they are performing OFAC censorship and they're likely to continue because at the end of the day, if you're doing this on Ethereum, you're probably just interested in making money. There's obviously nothing socially positive or even particularly interesting about this. They're exploiting a flaw in the construction of Ethereum. And rather than saying, hey, that's a problem we should fix, the Ethereum response was, hey, let's figure out a way to monetize that and maybe even create new tokens and secondary markets. What a great idea. I know that the word degenerate is politically loaded. At the same time, this feels like a very degenerate trader type situation they've created over there in MEV Ethereum land. Which brings us to privacy. We've talked about the Celsius project and their very public bankruptcy. That was a very interesting journey for me. I remember in the first couple episodes of the Bitcoin Dad Pod, Chris talked positively about Celsius. And his perspective was that dealing with traditional banks in the US was not a great experience for him. He lives in an RV, so his address is a little non-standard. And a lot of the assumptions of traditional banking 
assuming that you have a job with an employer and a fixed address and whatnot didn't apply to him. And that was frustrating and, and often, I think, made him feel excluded. And things like Celsius, which are banked itself as a neobank, were very attractive. Well, it turned out that Celsius was literally a Ponzi scheme because it was insolvent and taking customers' money and paying money out to other customers. So it was literally a Ponzi scheme. They created their own altcoin token called the Cell token and created complicated incentives to hold it. And that's really their innovation because they said, no, we're not a Ponzi scheme because look, we created this intermediary token out of thin air. And therefore this token is in the middle of the Ponzi behavior. So clearly this is legitimate. Well, it turned out it wasn't. Everyone involved was a total inept scammer. And now doubling down on that ineptness, they've filed a bankruptcy court filing and they have doxed every single user of the platform because this filing includes names, trading history, transaction times, and amounts. You can actually combine this with on-chain data and connect this to people's wallets. So, wow, what a privacy failure. What's interesting is that, at least in the summary I'm reading, Celsius apparently asked for the names of its users to be hidden in the court filings, but the judge refused. So maybe it's not their fault directly. I would say it is their fault because, look, if you can write down all of this personally identifiable data and put it in a document, then you're not storing it correctly, right? You, you, you really shouldn't be able to put all this together so easily. I don't think we should let Celsius off the hook, but this is a lesson about how dealing with the centralized financial companies, and I include my local bank, my brokerage account in this mix, means that once they have your data, you have no control over who it's shared with or what happens to it. And financial data is very sensitive. I'm lucky or unlucky to not have an amount in my bank account that I think would be particularly interesting to anybody. But still, I don't want that information out there. It would be so awkward. My former classmates might look at my bank account balance and feel very satisfied with themselves. And I might feel the opposite. Who knows? So I just think that financial information obviously should be private. And this is a yet another example of how it's not private at all. And this is not a sustainable status quo. I think it's really going to lead to problems. And even though Bitcoin doesn't have great privacy by default, it has the potential for privacy and it doesn't have these custody problems. And so that's part of the bullish case for Bitcoin, in my opinion. I have also linked to a very short page of online privacy tips from Mulvad VPN. I wish they'd sponsor the pod. They don't, but I do use them. And I was on their website setting up a VPN type thing. They have pretty good documentation too, which I like about them. Anyway, I just found this privacy guide and I think it's good to read up on privacy fundamentals, on thinking about privacy. And I'm not saying, you know, delete your Gmail right away, but read about how that would work and kind of get on that path. The other reason I shared this is I noticed that I am breaking some of these privacy suggestions. I don't browse the internet in privacy mode and I should. I think that there's an issue where if you don't browse in privacy mode, other websites can kind of see what websites you have open in your browser and that can kind of fingerprint you and give them information about your interests. I mean, you know, my bad. I really should have taken more precaution. So that was a wake up for me. And I think it's just a useful little article if you're interested in that kind of thing. Which brings us to our sponsor. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from Jupiter Broadcasting. Chris usually reads these ads because it's his show. Him and his buddy Alex talk about self-hosting stuff, which means having your own computer and running some things on it that could be paid services like a media service 
server or a Nextcloud, which is sort of a drop-in replacement for Google Cloud and Google Docs and Google Calendar, but also Dropbox. So self-hosting is a fun, nerdy activity. If you like computers, if you like learning how to build little services, you could create your own local website. You could even create a public website and host it at your computer at home. That is possible. Our friend of the show, Katan, I'm just saying that, hope he's a friend. Uh, He hosts his blog on his computer at home. Totally cool. So you can learn all about self-hosting at the Self-Hosted Show in any podcast app or go to selfhosted.show. Which brings us to Bitcoin education. This is my first time finding the sirhack.me blog, but it is pretty fire. There's some good stuff in there, including an article about uh, cryptocurrency wallets that I thought was pretty clear, if a little basic. This article is about the Bitcoin Genesis block, and specifically that Satoshi shared an early version of the Bitcoin source code prior to the Bitcoin version that eventually launched. And why is this interesting? Well, Sir Hack has gone through the source code and kind of compared it to the eventual Bitcoin software. He also diagnoses the components of the Genesis block. And he points out that the Genesis block of Bitcoin is very interesting because for a decentralized system, the first block of that system is actually issued. There's an entity that provides the first block. And then as other people join and start mining, they build blocks on top of that. And it becomes this group consensus project. But it does start with that first block that is um, issued by Satoshi. And in particular, there is a slight complication in that every Bitcoin block refers to a previous block. And Sir Hack talks about how when you create the genesis block of a system, you can just set the hash of the previous block to to zero. And that might be a good idea. That might not be. He, he believes there or she believes that there are some potential issues with that. So what Satoshi actually did is provide a hash of a previous Genesis block. There's actually a hash in the Genesis block that refers to a previous block, except that block does not live on Bitcoin. There is actually a block that Satoshi likely mined with test software. And Sir Hack believes that the prototype software that Satoshi shared with the cypherpunk mailing list is probably what was used to create this alternative block. But this pre-Genesis block is referred to in the Genesis block, but it, it never actually arrived on the Bitcoin main chain. It was a product of a test chain that, you know, probably doesn't exist anymore, you know, unless, you know, Satoshi saved all of his local testing work for posterity, which seems unlikely because Satoshi has completely disappeared and has the best OPSEC in the world. The other interesting thing about this block post is there's a section about who is behind Satoshi. And Sir Hack is very interested in stylometric analysis, which is when you take all of someone's known writings and you compare them to other people's writing to figure out if maybe they're the same person. And it's apparently been done many times trying to figure out if Satoshi was, say, Hal Finney or Nick Zabo or Adam Back. And the output has basically demonstrated that no, none of these people are Satoshi. Well, I think that based on 
on Sir Hack's interest in stylometric analysis, they think that Satoshi is potentially all of these people or a subset or a group of people. Because with stylometric analysis, if you have multiple people sharing a document and all contributing to it, it kind of confuses the ability to fingerprint the author. I have a different take. I think that the construction of Bitcoin really doesn't make sense as a group of experts. Bitcoin isn't a technological project in the same way that, say, splitting the atom was. It's not like you take an expert in materials, an expert in physics, an expert in chemistry, and they can perform this experiment. Bitcoin takes existing ideas, Byzantine fault tolerance, cryptographic hashing, public-private key, cryptography, proof-of-work from Adam Back's research, and combines them into something that creates what is effectively a monetary system. It's actually a messaging system, but it can act as money, depending on if you believe it is, which is how money works. Money is based on belief. It's very difficult for me to imagine a group of people understanding all of these things so deeply. To me, it really seems like a work of genius. And I, and I say that having spoken to someone like Paul Storks. When I talk to Paul Storks about drive chain and I look at his code, maybe it's weird to use the G word about someone when they're not around. But I mean, I think he is, there's certainly some genius there. I don't know, we could debate on a genius or something, but there is genius in that work. And I don't think it's something that could be created by committee. I think that there's some sort of essential creativity that comes from an individual consuming lots of knowledge of other people, really educating themselves, and then they synthesize it into something a little bit new, a little bit different. And that's what Bitcoin is. Which leads nicely to Jameson Lop's article, Was Satoshi a Greedy Miner? Anyone who's gearing up to criticize Bitcoin, they look through all the things you could criticize. And right there at the beginning is Satoshi, who appears to potentially have mined 1.1 million Bitcoin, nearly 5% of the entire supply. This conclusion is made by analyzing something called the Patoshi pattern. Yes, I said that right. Not the Satoshi pattern, but the Patoshi pattern. What is the Patoshi pattern? Well, inside the Bitcoin Coinbase transaction is a field called the extra nonce field, and it increments every time the nonce field overflows, i.e. the search space is exhausted. And that means that essentially sometimes this field overflows, sometimes it doesn't on each block. But there is one miner for whom the nonce field never overflows. And so essentially there is the thought that there is this miner, an early miner, who had a slightly custom mining software, and this may have been Satoshi. And this is called the Patoshi pattern. And there are some odd things about this pattern. The first is that they used a custom-coded multi-threaded Bitcoin client, so a more efficient Bitcoin mining client that was not publicly available. This was not the standard Bitcoin client. What this means is that a regular program, it operates on one CPU core, but if you do more work as a programmer, you can make a program execute on all cores and sync up after the execution is done. It's more work, but it makes things faster. And the other thing about the Potoshi pattern is that this entity had very constant hash rate for months. They were, I believe, just active at the beginning of Bitcoin. And then they systematically reduced their hash rate over time. They also spent fewer than 20 of the 22,000 blocks. That is weird because, as we've said before, if you want to get rich, concentrate wealth. But if you're already rich, you want to diversify. So early Bitcoiners were incentivized to cash out and spread those Bitcoin around. But this Potoshi pattern miner did not do that. They just mined 
aligned and held. The other interesting thing about the Patoshi pattern is if you time the distribution of these blocks, you'll notice that they don't seem to be trying very hard to win blocks. When miners are mining all the time trying to win the next block, they'll often win back-to-back -back blocks, especially in the beginning of Bitcoin when there weren't that many miners. And often these blocks will be less than 10 minutes apart. But the Patoshi miner rarely, if ever, did this. It, it almost looked like they were throttling their mining in order to keep the chain ticking, but not win too many blocks. And I have to say that from what I know of Satoshi, this is exactly what Satoshi would do. Satoshi was really an altruist when it came to Bitcoin. He wanted Bitcoin to succeed, did not seem particularly interested in getting rich off of his creation. There were so many opportunities to get rich, and it just doesn't look like Satoshi took many of them, or, or any of them, possibly. They gave people coins, they sent coins around. They never seemed to really be concerned about the financial implications of mining the first million Bitcoins. So this is a fascinating read, and you will learn more about mining and the analysis of early Bitcoin mining. Thanks again to Jameson Lop doing real research for the space. This week's Bitcoin Optech has a large section about a post by Gloria Zhao on the Bitcoin Dev mailing list, which is a proposal to modify transaction relay policies. Gloria's talked previously about how changing transaction relay policies are complicated because you can introduce new denial of service attacks to the Bitcoin network, and you can also inadvertently change consensus rules because if you change the relay policy, you may end up excluding some transactions from being relayed. And even though you could send that transaction directly to a miner to get relayed, if you make it harder for certain transactions to be processed, then you're effectively disincentivizing them and changing consensus. It's a tricky issue, but I think that the general gist of these changes is to make replace by fee more default and work better, and also to you know essentially make Bitcoin transactions a little bit more flexible and malleable before they get into a block. This was a big controversy during the scaling wars. The Bitcoin cash crew really liked the idea of unconfirmed transactions because that could simulate instant payments like the Lightning Network does or like Visa does. And so they liked the idea of, you know, you send a transaction, it hasn't been confirmed, but I can still act like it will be confirmed because, you know, it's going to get into a block and there's no way to suck it out of the mempool. Well, that's just not how Bitcoin works. That's a, a simulated use of Bitcoin. It's not consensus. And so when Bitcoin essentially, the Bitcoin core developers move towards the consensus approach where if it's not in a block, it's up for grabs. This really triggered the Bitcoin cash crowd and, you know, they went the big block route, which doesn't seem to have gone too well for them. There's another section about Lightning Network flow control where Rene Picard suggests a change to the HTLC maximum MSAT parameter. Um, I don't exactly know what this parameter is used for, but the concept is relatively simple. Essentially, right now, Lightning channels have a maximum size or maximum transaction size. And by tweaking these properties, you could, you could essentially rate limit funds going through your Lightning channel in some direction. And this could theoretically be used to balance the channel over time. If I have a channel on one side, I have a channel to Chris. On the other side, I have a channel to Paul, and Chris is paying Paul a lot. So all of my all of the balances on my channel to Chris move to my side, and on my 
channel to Paul, move to Paul's side. I could maybe tweak the sort of flow rate through these channels, which would make it cheaper to send money from Paul to me and me to Chris, which would kind of balance these channels out without having me make an on-chain transaction, which would uh, incur fees. So there's a, it's sort of a complicated discussion, but I think that's the gist of it. A lot more in there. I recommend you sign up to Bitcoin Optech. That's bitcoinops.org. They have a weekly newsletter, which is very technical and educational. And that brings us to feedback. Remember, you can always get in touch with the show via Bitcoin DadPod at protonmail.com, at Bitcoin DadPod on Twitter, or send in a boost using a podcasting 2.0 app, such as Fountain.fm for Android, Castomatic for iOS, or Podverse, which is one we really like now. And we don't seem to have any feedback this week, possibly because my umbral node went down again. I know, been meaning to fix that, just not had a lot of time lately. So very sorry. I know I'm letting everybody down, so I will do my best to put a better solution in place. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Sunday, October 9th, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad. And thank you so much for listening to this solo episode. I hope it was interesting, even though I did not have a sparkling co-host like Chris or Paul. Hopefully we should be back with Chris next week, and I'll see you next time.